And I also want to point out more like sociological factors that prohibit us from being like other countries. Like people always point to Sweden and Norway and and other European countries or even Taiwan and, you know, all these countries that seem seem to have great single payer systems. And it's because at a very core level in these countries, the populations are much more homogenous than the U.S., you know, everyone's white or everyone's Asian or everyone's a certain way. And, and there's all this like psychology and sociology research that shows that I'm more willing to take a tax to pay more if I know I'm supporting someone who looks like me. This is the Providers, Properties and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Welcome back to the second part of a two-part episode with Vinny Singh, an assistant professor in the Department of Resource Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst with a PhD in Health Economics and Policy. Today, Vinny discusses why the U.S. has challenges with getting its citizens to accept universal health care, and she shares ideas all aimed at simplifying our very complicated health care industry that can potentially reduce the cost and improve the quality of health care. In last week's episode, Vinny and I discussed statistics about the current state of the U.S. healthcare system compared to other comparable developed countries, the current state of the ACA, and what is working and what still needs to be improved. Do you see in your research, do you see some of the next steps in the ACA to make it more understandable for the layperson, or do you see some of the confusion surrounding it? Or I understand the paperwork to enroll is incredibly difficult to understand to do it correctly. So just healthcare by itself is so complicated that I just, I'm not sure what an easy system would even look like. I think Taiwan has a really good, one thing that could make it easy for everyone is sort of allow information sharing. Right now, my insurer has part of the information, the provider has part of the information, I don't have my own medical information. If there was like a central hub where you know, doctors could see my medical background, even if I haven't been to that state ever in my life or that hospital ever in my life. Like, I mean, CVS does it. Like I can go into a different CVS and in a different state and they will know they have my information, you know? So I think something that would make understanding this a bit salient to us that, you know, our our healthcare is improving, uh, the ACA could do something like that. But the actual rules of the ACA or any healthcare uh, bill I don't know if if it's easy to understand. I'm not sure I would trust it just because then it could mean is that it's just blanket applying rules to people and there's just too much variation in needs and, and how rich people are and uh, where they live and what they believe in and, you know, where they're getting their care form for it to be. So yes, maybe it would make you understand it better, but I think people would be unhappier because they would just be like, well, this doesn't apply to me. Lots to do. I I, I really don't want to say that the ACA is perfect, far from it, but if it, it's not the destination is how I think of it. It's like, 
one imperfect step towards a bigger goal. Yeah. And I also want to point out more like sociological factors that, that prohibit us from being like other countries. Like people always point to Sweden and Norway and, and other European countries or even Taiwan. And, you know, all these countries that seem, seem to have great single payer systems. And it's because at a very core level in these countries, the populations are much more homogenous than the U S you know, everyone's white or everyone's Asian or everyone's a certain way. And, and there's all this like psychology and sociology research that shows that I'm more willing to take a tax to, to pay more if I know I'm supporting someone who looks like me. And in the U.S., it's just like there's it, this sort of like non-heterogeneity in how we look and who we worship or our cultures, they're barriers to many other things, but also the concept of that I should pay for your healthcare when you might have a very different lifestyle than me. Or and and when you look different, it sort of amplifies these differences. There's a lot, yeah. There is a lot. And I would say these differences, one, it's it's what the US was built on to protect everyone's differences. And in that time it was religion specifically, because everyone that came over here, well, everyone that came over here willingly was white, but I but that I think our heterogeneity is what makes us different and, and is one of our best qualities if we can. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when you ask me whether the ACA has been like foundation of the ACA built on the value that the health that the poor people should be helped. And if it's at the expense of richer people, then it is fine because the rich people can handle it. But that might that value might not be shared by everyone. And I understand if it isn't, but all policies are made with a fundamental value at heart. Um, and there's going to be losers and there's going to be winners. And whoever decides the winners and losers decides so based on what they believe. So in what the ACA believed, it has accomplished to a large extent that the health and the insurance status of poor people and disadvantaged people has gotten better. And even like middling people, it's like the reverse trickle down. It's like the grassroots, if the bottom tier is healthy, then the higher tiers are less likely to bear that burden. So I have a positive view of the ACA. I can also see why other people might not. Is it possible to have any successful hybrid model that offers the basic minimum health care to a large portion of population that otherwise wouldn't get it, um, but then maintain a private insurance model, but achieving the goals of reducing health care costs and improving health care quality? So yes, so before I answer that, I just, um, if the listeners take away one thing from this, uh, like I said, I want it to be known that universal healthcare is different than single payer healthcare. Universal healthcare is an outcome where everyone is insured, whereas single payer is a one way of achieving that outcome, which is just they're the government. And it's okay if you are going to be unhappy with single payer, but it is really hard to argue why you think universal coverage shouldn't be achieved. And there's little downsides. Even if you forget the econ economics for a bit, why shouldn't people have health insurance? You know, whatever health insurance it is, we will all fall sick at some point in our lives. And it's unfair from an equity perspective that some people can survive that illness and other people can't. So, so that's universal healthcare. I think there, in the US, it is possible to get universal healthcare in some form. I, I generally believe, and not, I don't know how soon, 
But I think there's growing support for it. This pandemic has probably increased support for it. Single pair? Never say never. If I were to, had to bet on it, I would probably not bet that that would happen in the U.S. Mostly because uh, the private health insurance business is billions of dollars big right now. And I don't know if you can squash that, even if you wanted to, which I don't even, I don't even think anyone really wants to. Like the Netherlands does this hybrid, not even hybrid. It's like a, everyone has universal healthcare, but they are, it's dispensed through private companies with heavy regulation. And it has its pros and cons. And then, you know, like Taiwan has single payer, which is just the government does everything. And Australia has a mixed. And there's pros and cons to all of them. But I think as a developed nation, universal healthcare should not, should be something that we can agree on. If you have a good argument for why not everyone should have access to health insurance, I would love to hear it. I haven't heard it yet. I've got like, I don't agree with them, but I, I have gotten arguments for why it shouldn't be single payer. Personally, I think a hybrid model is not only most from an economics standpoint, probably closer to what we want in healthcare, but also what would be possible in the U.S. at this point. Yeah. Like you said, this, this is obviously a very broad question. You can probably, you can pick one thing, but why do you feel that the U.S. falls short on healthcare quality, on the, on the healthcare quality side of the equation? With the amount that we spend, why isn't the quality better? Um, so there is no evidence that money is directly related to quality, first of all, for many reasons. But one thing is like, the system is built to reward spending more without any concern to quality. So they're the free-for-service system that is like Medicare still is mostly fee-for-service. It's just like the more services you provide, the more money you get. You know, there's like defensive medicine and all these things where like the more tests you you want to please the patient, you also don't want risk of like a lawsuit. So you just sort of like order as many tests as possible and you both get a lot more money than ordering one test. And also you insulate yourself from patient dissatisfaction and or getting sued. But that's not a model that that value will come out of. So the U.S. is slowly moving towards a value-based payment model where providers are being reimbursed on the quality of care they provide, which I imagine a lot of providers aren't too happy about that. Uh, but it is something that could potentially increase quality. Although, as with anything, you can game anything. So how gameable these things are will uh, determine well how the U.S.'s quality of healthcare services will improve. I think the answer to that would just be like, there's no reason to believe that the more money you throw at a problem, the more likely it is to be solved, at least in healthcare, up to a certain point, probably. But if we as a society choose to decide to continue to kick this can down the road, are we as Americans accepting to pay higher costs, either out of pocket as the patient, as patients at the end of the cost situation? I don't think anything's going to happen if we don't try to right course the ship around, like turn the ship around. Like it's just heading towards greater costs and worse quality if we don't do anything. And uh, if the pandemic's taught us anything is that, you know, like we're all going to be affected at some point. Trying to get insurance looks even stupider now with the pandemic for which you need health insurance, but people are also losing their jobs. So they end up with no jobs and no health insurance, which in no state of the world is that a good outcome. 
Well, and if you parse it a little bit into, you know, kind of what I would say, and these are very generic, but the three tranches of healthcare, preventative, chronic, and trauma. So trauma, I don't think you can't do anything to change that because that's, we're human and we're going to have accidents. You know, there is some correlation between chronic and preventative. And I I think everyone agrees chronic taxes the system with costs most because it's ongoing and sometimes no solution. And it takes a while to try different things. But some of that chronic care can be maybe either prevented or, you know, found early enough with preventative care. You know, when someone says, you know, I'm healthy and I maintain preventative care and I don't spend 10000 a year, but people aren't that lucky and they're using the system and do pay more. So you have this dichotomy of they're like, well, I don't want to pay for it because I don't need it. But yet the people that do are taxing the system and causing increasing costs because they still try to use the system because they need they need it for chronic care. And sometimes what's unfortunate is people that are saying, hey, I'm healthy and don't need the system, then they they end up developing a chronic illness that needs to be solved. And then they're like, you know, <laughs> oh no, now I have to pay for this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that's sort of like a mixture of two very important economic concepts. One I've already talked about is adverse selection. It's like the sick people are the ones who are going to enroll in any program designed to protect against sickness first. And then the second is like moral hazard, where it's like, if you give people health insurance, they will be more likely to use it. Um, And ex ante, even if you didn't expect them to use it, giving them will just sort of, you're like, oh, I have it. I have health insurance, so I should go do X, Y, or Z, even though I might not need it. And that could tax the system more. But right right now, uh, the problem of moral hazard is an issue, but also there's the opposite problem where like if, you know, it would like cost share. So cost sharing was introduced to sort of alleviate this problem of moral hazard where like if you if you have skin in the game, you're less likely to just your willy nilly use healthcare. But then it like if you have skin in the game for if for like a traumatic incident, that's probably not right either. Like you want to be able to go to the ED without worrying about whether I really, really need it. Like if you think you're having a heart attack, you should probably be allowed to go to the emergency room without worrying about what if it wasn't a heart attack and just like heartburn. Right. You offered some, I thought there's two ideas that are just in the interest of time that I wanted to explore with you further, but you were presented with the question of, you know, offering some solutions. And one was that um, physicians, patients, and payers all accept risk for care for the things that they can influence. So can you elaborate on that idea? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, This is actually a fairly big part of my research, which is just like, right now, everyone is assuming some risk, but a lot of the risk is not something you can really control. So you end up like feeling slighted and trying to game the system. Like one thing is like with um, uh, value-based payment models with providers, you know, you are saying that you will lose some of your salary if your patients aren't healthy. And that's fine to an extent. But sometimes it's measured in really um, interesting ways. So like if if a doctor has a readmission rate about 30%, they lose a, some of their salary. I don't really know how much you can influence readmission rates, maybe to a certain extent, but readmission has a lot to do also with where is the patient discharged to? Are they, do they have a supportive network at home? Do they Can they get their prescriptions? You know, so... So what ends up happening is that physicians know that they can't control this. So they 
just like, let me just get healthier patients from the get-go. So even if they don't have a network at home, they are still less likely to be readmitted just because they're just healthy. This sort of risk-taking, pushing risk on people, uh, which they can't control and are penalized for, is just probably not healthy. And in the same way, I've already talked about the, the risk sharing for patients. Be like, yeah, make some of the risk dependent on them where it's just like, oh, uh, do I need a 10th CT scan this year? No, tie some of the cost of a CT scan directly to their, like make them pay for some of it, but don't probably don't make them pay for things that could result in them dying. Like cost for ambulance rides, like the number of heartbreaking stories about people not taking ambulances, even though they're like collapsing because they, the cost is too much. It's just can't be very useful for anyone involved. So I think one of the ideas is like, make people responsible for some of the risk, but make sure it's not just completely random. Things they can control, they would be more likely to affect their behavior in a positive way without having it harm anyone. And you had also talked about the reimbursement system. So you had talked about how it's currently built to make billing easier and it's not built to improve healthcare. How how could you change that? I don't actually know if it'll ever get changed now because it took like two decades this system. So so one thing I think about is like the electronic health record system, which the ACA actually pushed a lot. Uh, but what ended up happening is the EHR system sort of became this this quicksand for providers where they just had to input crazy amounts of information that had probably the so far, there isn't a lot of evidence that it improves uh, patient quality of care. What it ends up doing is makes it easier for insurers to identify this is where they can like charge and this is exactly what happens. So the bill can be, it, it's become a system for billing, which is not good for either the provider or the patient, but it's very good for the insurer. So it'd be really nice to have a system where provider opens this person's portal and they can see like what their prior histories are and what, you know, even like stuff about like social determinants of health, like what their home life is like and things that would affect care and make it easy instead of these like thousands of drop downs and in like inscrutable design. Like, I mean, I, I find it really hard to believe that, you know, the MacBooks have this like beautiful flow, but like electronic health records, if you've ever gotten one, it is like Pan's Labyrinth. It's crazy. So I, I think a system that prioritized patient care over billing would be helpful for everyone also to avoid burnout in physicians. Like I can't imagine it's very fun for them to do administrative work. This is the scary part is I don't think any physician should ever know what a billing code is. Like the fact that they are thinking in their mind, how do I choose care based on the billing code that I need in order to get paid for this? You know, I feel like that's got to be affecting how their care. Yeah, it absolutely is. And in good (laughs) and bad ways. There's so much research on it, like upcoding, maybe not directly by physicians, but hospitals encourage like, oh, you stay with a patient for 31 minutes, charge it up to 45 minutes instead of 30 minutes, uh, 15 to 30 minutes. And like, uh, there's this really, really fancy paper um, by very fancy people and showed that the, the way the physicians were billing, they're working an amount that is physically not possible. Like in a day, they're working like 42 hours, which is just it's just not possible. So where we fail as policymakers and designers is where someone gets like 
you know, has a hard time and then has to figure out how to game that system, which is, I, I don't imagine physicians want to do this, but given lack of time and then, you know, their, their salaries are being encroached on by value-based systems. I, I imagine it's a natural response to it. It's not good, but I can't say that and any of us wouldn't do it. <laughs> so, Well, Vinny, I mean, I could sit in a continuous conversation for hours. I mean, I find it incredibly interesting and there's a lot more to solve and a lot more questions and we have answers right now. But I guess with anything, if we can all just sort of come to the table with, I, I would believe, some open minds and say, we've got a problem. Let's hear everyone's thoughts. Let's figure out how to start. And, you know, it can't be we go from zero to 100. You really have to go in steps. I do believe that there is a solution out there. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm hopeful. I think we're moving in the right direction. And as we're moving, no one really likes to see motion. But I'm pretty sure that, you know, if we sort of keep trying, we'll end up at a place that at least some people will be happy with. Uh, and slowly people will grow to be okay with it. And hopefully wherever we end up helps enough of the population that um, it's worth it. Before we head into the Q&A session of this interview, I want to take a moment to promote an offer. If you are a provider and you own your own real estate and ever wondered what your options are, I invite you to schedule a 20-minute strategy session with me to discuss the benefits of a sale leaseback transaction. If you have 10 years or more left to practice or you are a large practice, a sale leaseback provides you with the proceeds now to exit the real estate and reinvest into your practice or invest elsewhere. Please go to docproperties.com forward slash free dash consultation Dash, Trisha dash, Talbot to schedule a call. The link will be in the show notes as well if you're driving or unable to write it down. Thank you. And now we'll return back to the interview. Well, I'm going to move on to some questions to get to know you a little bit. So uh, what was your first job? In college, I uh, I'd actually taken all the pre-med courses in high school. So I was a pre-med tutor. Uh, in my first year of college. And that was, that was my first job. What would you be doing for a living if you were not a healthcare economist? Um, A not fun, fairly boring answer would probably be a physician, but a fun answer would be that I'd probably be like a fiction writer. I'm very into creative writing and it's far more fun than writing academic articles. (laughs) Well, I can't imagine the amount of data that you sift through in a day. So, you know, relaxing and creative writing or fiction novels has got to be uh, stress relieving. (laughs) Only so many method sections you can read and write before just having your brain become to gloop. (laughs) What or who are you reading or listening to right now for news, information or inspiration? So I'm reading uh, Algorithms to Live By, which if anyone's interested, it's just like a, like five or six very important math algorithms that should help your life, like when how to, how to use math to buy a house properly or date properly or, you know, just day-to-day decisions like clean your closet. And it's a book about how we agonize over these choices, but really the answer is very obvious once you take math into account. So that's the book I'm reading. And the uh, I think a podcast I'm listening to is a um, podcast by Lex Friedman. Uh, it's on artificial intelligence and sort of like a philosophy and ramifications of artificial intelligence, which is really fun. 
That's interesting because my husband and I, um, we tell our kids, if you learn nothing in school, you have got to understand and learn to love math because it, whatever you do, it's important for you to understand the math behind it. And my husband's an electrical engineer. So, of course, he's our uh, CEO of math tutoring in our house. You know, when they get frustrated, you know, with algebra, we're like, algebra is where it starts. So just yes, practice, yes. practice, 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 practice. <laughs> there's, there's one thing that, I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's a math person. Um, I think, I, I mean, there's evidence also that there's no character trait, like loving math. Maybe if you're a savant, maybe the top, like it's like a 5% of people who are really good at math. But for the rest of us, we can all, if we didn't get good at math, it's because we didn't have the right teachers or no one told us. Yeah. Like explain math to us in a way that was beautiful. So. Right. And it's a universal language. It's the same. Absolutely. Yeah. At wherever you are. So what is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? To be honest, I'm really bad at it. Um, but I think one thing that helps me by default have self-care is uh, cuddling with my dog. I have a rescue dog and she is really large and fluffy. So it's really fun. And oh. I can feel my pressure is melting away. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel that leaders are born or trained? I think this is sort of similar to the math question where um, I think more so they are trained than born. I'm sure there is like maybe 5% of your leadership, I don't know, gene is activated solely by genes. But most of it, like I think if you raised and I don't actually know the answer to this. This sort of comes from the thing that um, in history, there was always a thing that people said that, you know, the women can't do this or this type of group can't do that or or this is an innate thing. And it always turned out to be wrong. I really think being too heavily focused on whether you were born a certain way sort of detracts from whether you can get there with enough practice. And I think you can. And I think in this day and age, the... Your leadership skills constantly have to be honed because you're you're being thrown challenges that you didn't expect. <laughs> so yeah, I know I really learned like we should all get a course or some sort of official training on how to be a leader. I, I don't think a lot of us are just naturally thrown into environments where we figure out we are leaders or not. Um, but I think we could all get there with a bit of help. <laughs> well, Vinny, I, I very much appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. This was great. Well, thank you very much, Vinny. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.